Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thank you for tuning in to Growth Island again. So today's guest I first met around six years ago at a beach house apartment. It was his beach house apartment. Little did I know back then, apart from that he was a pretty good kite surfer, that I was standing with one of the best in the world when it comes to health and a super good entrepreneur as well. He was just a pretty chill guy that I was like, yeah, he's pretty cool. And we went kite surfing and so on. And then later I looked up his name and I was like, holy fuck, <laughs> this guy is a big shot. Uh, good that I didn't know because I wouldn't have been that chill because he's been like on the stage with Tony Robbins. He is like, he's really up there. And like now he's also one of the most popular people on Mind Valley. And just in general, like I could continue like for 10, 20 minutes on half an hour telling about this guy. But instead, I would like to introduce Eric Edmentis. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks very much for having me. And uh, we got to get, we got to get, get more kiteboarding in soon. Yes, for sure. I look but in my to- water, not yours. <laughs> Ours is, a, is a way too cold. Yeah. So Eric, I am, um, I looked a lot into what you did afterwards and you've been like exploring the world. Like I'm dreaming about, like you've been with native tribes around the world. You've not only been super successful with many companies, but you also really been an explorer and you're living the life of kite surfing and so on. Like that, that's pretty fantastic and pretty much like I, I have a few role models, but you definitely fit into the to that spectrum. How, how did you get into all that stuff? I think part of it was that even as a kid, I, I really was interested in having fun. You know, like I just was interested in having fun. And so, you know, whenever I evaluate the various opportunities in my life, one of the primary questions I'm asking, you know, is how much fun is this going to be? What's the fun potential here? And uh, as I got older, that became even more important to me. And so these days, you know, where in my 20s, I would like somebody go, oh, I've got an opportunity. I'd be like, okay, how much money can we make? You know, how much time will it take? Then will it be fun? Will it have an impact? And, and these days, and then I got into my 40s and it's like, first question, will it have an impact? And then, you know, will it make some money and da, da, da. But I get into my 50s and now it's like, will it be fun? <laughs> so, you know, right off the bat. And I think that maybe that thought process is part of why I've been able to pack so much in. Because for me, it doesn't feel like I've packed so much in. I've just been living my day to day. But then, you know, friends of mine are like, God, you've been to so many places. You've done so many things. I'm like, well, yeah, but I was just trying to have fun. And I think, I think that's pretty amazing because many people get super successful and they continue to just focus on building and building and building that empire. And they forgot to actually have fun. Do you know, there's one conversation that was life-changing for me. My first girlfriend that we were together for many years and we moved to Vancouver and she was looking for work and suddenly out of the blue she got hired by this family to be their nanny because they just found out they're having a surprise baby and they needed a new nanny and so my girlfriend went to work for them and at first like we knew they were wealthy but you didn't you don't really you know they they didn't show it large right but as we got to know them over the years we've realized like well wait a minute now they own a jet then they owned another jet and they, like, they were wealthy on a level beyond anything I'd ever, I mean, my grandparents were fairly wealthy. I, I'd seen money, but I didn't, no, 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 this was another level. And one day, the wife, 
who they, they really were like my, you know, my, like a, a pair of adoptive parents for me at this point. They were just, they, they, they've been some of the biggest influences in my life. And, and, and the, the wife came to me one day and she goes, don't, um, don't get trapped in the way that art is her husband. Don't get trapped in like that. You know, look how hard he's working. And, you know, he's he, at that point, he was in his 50s and he's working, you know, he's getting he's leaving for work at 530 in the morning and he's not getting back till six o'clock at night and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think that during those years, I probably spent more time with his children than he did, you know, because I was just hanging out playing hockey with them and stuff. Right. And and by the way, incredible guy, just very, very driven and loving what he was doing. But, you know, she was like, don't get trapped in that. And it's funny because I started thinking about that in my first business. And I realized that I, growing my business had become a chasing rainbows thing. It had just become about making the money. And I don't, I no longer liked it. I didn't like the industry. I was in this, the barcode data capture, wireless networking, logistics management industry. And I had, I just didn't like it. I, I wasn't interested in it. It just happened to be where I was when I started my business. And I made the decision that I wanted to get out. And very quickly after that, I was approached by some people that came along and offered to buy it from me. And it's funny, I was talking to a business mentor of mine. He goes, Eric, this is the wrong time to sell. You're at the steepest part of the growth curve. Like you're about to double in size. Think about that. If you double in size over this year, your company will be worth three times as much. Because you know, as the company gets bigger, you get a bigger multiple, which means whatever you're getting now, you could literally get three times that amount in a year. Where else could you get that kind of return? You're at the... And I said, yeah, but my soul is worth more to me than that. And, and I sold. And I sold for a life-changing amount of money, but it could have been a generationally life-changing amount of money if I held on for three or four more years. But, you know, I, I just, that wasn't my priority. And, and, and so I think now I've really, that advice that she gave me that day is, has been a part of my thinking all the time. Like I, even now with the businesses I've got now, I, I'm really clear with my team that the schedules need to be built in a way like I can't, I, I can't just be traveling from one city to the next speaking all that. I did that. I did that. I know what that's like. Now, when I, you know, if I get booked to speak, for example, in Copenhagen, I'm not going to go to Copenhagen, speak, get on the plane and fly home. I'm, I'm going to go to Copenhagen and I hang out for a week because there's bloody good food there and fun people, you know? And, and, and so I've really, um, I don't know. I think that advice really had a big impact on me and I'm grateful for it. And that's so important. I definitely see like too many people are not ending up living a happy life. And I have many super successful friends. Most of them are not that happy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, we get this conversation like money can't buy happiness. I'm like, no, 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 it totally can't. <laughs> it doesn't often, <laughs> but, but it there, and I, and I'm, I'm kidding. Of course, money cannot buy the emotional state of happiness, but what I can tell you and from my own experience is that when you don't, when I, when I haven't had money, I then have to make decisions based on money, right? Like think of it this way. If somebody is living from paycheck to paycheck, which is a lot of people, then now their boss treats them a little bit badly. They can't quit their job because they're living paycheck to paycheck. Like they need the paycheck. So that means that they they're willing to put up with things to tolerate things that they might not otherwise need to. But once they save like three months worth of money, now they've got three months of money in the bank. Well, now when their boss treats them badly or their work is yucky or what have you, they're going, yeah, I could quit. You know, I'd have three months breathing room. That gives them a sense of personal um, liberty. It gives them a sense of control of their destiny. And once they've saved a year's worth of money, they're better, their boss better not treat them badly ever again. I, I had a boss. Uh, I worked my, The last time I worked like at a job, I was the first full-time employee of a tech startup. And we grew the company to about 150 people. It was phenomenally successful. 
and I did like a lot of young people. I, got, I was making tons of money, but I just got in a lot of debt because every credit card company in the world was offering me credit. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I was a kid and I didn't know better. And my boss, he treated me and frankly, everybody really, really badly. I remember a good friend of his coming to the office one day and saying to him, you know, you can't treat people like this. And he said, this is what he said. His answer was exactly this. I pay them well enough that I can treat them however I like. I mean, you know, but guess what? What that meant was, is that if we had no money, we were held by that. And, and, and what he didn't know is in the last year that I worked for him, I paid off all my debts and I put some money away. And so he treated me badly again and I quit. And, and, I, I, and, and, and so there's something about that taking care of your financial life so that you um, are not a slave to money. And I, and I think that's really important. The trouble is, is that a lot of people don't know what, at what point to stop. So they like, they're working. I got to get the money. I got to get the money. I got to get the money. And then pretty soon they're at a point where they have more money than they could ever spend themselves. And then they're still working their asses yeah. off. They, they did not win the race. No. You built something called business freedom. And I saw some, uh, some videos with you as well. And uh, one thing that you really struck with me was that you also talked about taking time fully off. And like, for example, going to Africa, meeting a tribe or doing something where you told me, I was like, okay, that was, that was worth every single minute that I saw about that. Like, how do you become that business owner and still go out and live life? And like, tell me a bit uh, more. I'll about give that. you a clue. I'll give you a clue. You have a belief and your belief is that to be successful in business requires a huge amount of hard work and sacrifice. You, you have that belief. Is that true? That is true. Okay, now how do I know you have that belief? Because you just said to me, how do you build a business and still be able to go do this stuff? So that speaks of an internal belief that you have, right? So you're filtering the way I'm living or teaching it through the belief you have. But let's 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 go back another way. Business freedom uh, is is uh, we created the Business Freedom Academy to teach entrepreneurship, and I did this because when I started my first company, it took me six years to get to the place where I didn't have to go to work anymore. So after six years, going to, the, going to the office was optional for me. And that's how business is supposed to be. Entrepreneurship is supposed to be the greatest expression of personal freedom ever. It's supposed to be the opportunity for you to work a little smarter and a little harder than other people for a couple of years to create a lifestyle that other people only dream about when they buy a lottery ticket. That's what it's supposed to be. But we've been sold a different bill of goods. And it kind of started like this. You went to school. You did an assignment. You got your grades. And if you got help on the assignment, it was called cheating and you got punished. So you should all do everything yourself. And if you got bad grades, say in math, then the teacher said, spend more time on math. So you were told and trained to spend time on your weaknesses and to not get help from people all for 12 years plus of school. No, that's not how entrepreneurship works. Entrepreneurship works on, you work on your strengths. You recruit other people to work on your weaknesses and you, you, and you absolutely get help. Now, so let's talk about taking time off, right? In order to create a business that gives you business freedom, what you have to do is break two addictions. There are two very powerful addictions that need to be broken or not developed if you can stop them from being developed. The first addiction is your company's addiction to you. So if the, if the people in the company are constantly asking you questions, constantly asking you to make decisions, constantly checking in with you, that's an addiction. That means that there are not the right systems, procedures, and guidelines for them to run the business without you. The company's addicted to you. If you leave, there are withdrawal symptoms, right? So that's the first addiction we have to break. The second addiction we have to break is your addiction to the business. And this is a much more difficult thing, and it's, it's much more esoteric, but 
what happens for a lot of people is that they have emotional needs that are being met by their business. So for example, very often a business owner gets a lot of significance by being a business owner. They feel really important, but they don't feel important if they're not making decisions, if they're not doing stuff. Like for them to just walk around and do nothing, they don't feel important anymore. So they have to break their addiction to the uh, to getting their importance from the company, either by reducing their need for importance or by getting their importance filled another way. If you take a look at somebody like Richard Branson, he does not, he has a huge need for importance. I'm certain. I, you know, I mean, I don't mean that he has a huge ego or anything. He just likes being important. But how does he do that? He takes on massive social projects all around the world and gets his importance, not from his employees. I'm sure he gets lots of importance for them too, but, but he gets it in a more rounded way. When I ran my, my first business, I took 12 to 14 weeks of vacation every single year. And I did that so that I would break those two addictions. While I was away, my needs had to be met another way. And while I was away, the company had to solve problems. Remember that experience is the result of good judgment. Sorry, how does it work? Good judgment is the result of experience, I'm sorry. And then how do you get experience? From bad judgment. If I don't let my people make mistakes from time to time, they're never going to have any good experience. They're not going to develop good judgment. So what I'm saying is the bigger your company gets, the more successful your company gets, the more freedom you should experience. I fully agree. And for me, it was definitely like that remembering of being like, that's also working towards that. Like I took five months off to go to the Dominican Republic and enjoy that life. <clears throat> but I didn't, I didn't have the same concern. breakthrough of being like, yes, I'll take potentially 12 weeks for no one can get a hold of me. So I'm like, that's seeing that. And I think that's why role models are so amazing, right? You see someone and I saw the video of you and that for me, that was a clicking moment. I was yeah. like, okay, that's also what I want to do. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a question of working my way towards it. And then it's hiring the right people. Yeah. And so many business owners complain about getting the wrong people. But as a business owner, that's your main responsibility. So like, you can't complain about wrong people. You need to figure out how do you hire the wrong, like how do you hire the right people? And you had some interesting comments on that in one of the videos that I saw with you. And we got to where do you find good talents and develop them? My general thought is that it's really important to put people in roles that they have natural ability in and that they enjoy. So it's really, that's to me very, very important. I don't want somebody handling customer service if they don't enjoy people. I don't want somebody doing my accounts work if they're just going to go through the numbers because that's their job. I want somebody to do my accounting because when they're finished their work, they're going to go home and do Sudoku puzzles anyway because they like numbers, right? Yeah. So that's one of the things is that we, we very often hire because somebody says that they're good at doing something, but we're not really testing them for their proclivity. We're not really testing them for their natural ability. And we're not also testing them or quizzing them on their passion. And so that's a big part of it. So once you do that, that changes recruiting quite a lot because let's say you now want to hire an accountant. Well, what you know is you want somebody who is probably very detail-oriented, fastidious, you know, they, they enjoy numbers a great deal. Okay, that's great. But see now, it, let's say it's like me. I'm a more creative entrepreneur. I don't really like numbers all that much. I don't like doing that stuff. Well, that means I probably don't have a lot of friends that would make good accountants. It doesn't mean I don't like those people. It just means that I'm like louder and faster and they're quieter and more calm. And, and so it, they're not the most natural people to form friendships with. And, and by the way, we'd often hire people that we think we would like. But then that means that we hire people that are like us. 
Well, the worst thing in the world I could do is go hire somebody like me to do my accounting. That would be terrible. It would be absolutely terrible. Look, I'm pretty good at accounting, but I hate it. Therefore, I'm not going to do it very well, right? So, so I think that the first step is to get very clear about the frequency that you're looking for. You know, what is this person's personality? What do they have a passion for? What do they naturally enjoy? And then once you get clear about that, you will begin to notice that you see people differently. Look, speakers often use this example of like, have you ever had that experience where you suddenly decide you want to buy a new car and then now that car is everywhere? Right. Well, where was it before? Why couldn't you see it before? That example, in my opinion, is heavily flawed because you could see the car before. You, you could. The difference is that you couldn't see it for what it was. What I mean is, is that if you couldn't see the car, you would have been in countless car accidents because you didn't see it. The fact is you did see it. But in my case, when I was 22, I decided to want to buy a Jeep. All of a sudden, there's Jeeps everywhere. They were always there. But suddenly I'm seeing them for what they are. Well, wait a minute. Once I make the decision that I'm looking for a detail-oriented, fastidious person who really enjoys doing numbers, I will see those people in the crowd in a way that I wouldn't see them if I didn't know what I was looking for. So that's a big part of it, is, is getting really clear on who it, who it is that you're looking for. And then it's also where do you look for them. Most of the best people are often in jobs. Yeah, I very rarely engage or hire unemployed people. I, I, I know that sounds terrible, and, I, and I'm, I, I want to be clear about that. I have actually very often hired unemployed people, but it depends on the role and the responsibility and where I am. Like my first business in England, a huge number of my employees were longstanding unemployed people that had been on what they call the dole for five, six, seven plus years. And I loved creating those jobs for those people. It's one of the greatest honors of my life, really. What I'm talking about is like, I'm not going to hire an unemployed salesperson. And, 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 and that's not a hard, fast rule, because if they've quit their job and they're looking for work and they had a reason for quitting that job, yeah. But if they've been unemployed for like a year, if they weren't off traveling the world and, you know, if it wasn't a year of sabbatical, if it's a year of them trying to find a job and they haven't found a job in a year as a salesperson, that's going to make me think a little bit about their quality as a salesperson. If they can't sell themselves then how are they going to sell your product or service or my product or service? So I, the first thing is I tend not to, um, I tend to be looking for people that are, that are, um, that are achieving something in the career that they've chosen and try to see how we might be able to help them achieve even more. When I was speaking of salespeople, when I used to recruit for my tech company, I tried a variety of different, you know, I tried running ads. I tried working with like headhunter companies or what have you, but I'll tell you, nothing for me was more effective then going out to electronic stores, you know, stores that sold computers and TVs and that kind of stuff, because we sold technology too. We just sold high technology. We, we, we sold, you know, inventory management systems and not stereos, right? So, but yeah, what I would do is I'd go there and I'd go buy a printer or go buy something. And I would learn a lot about the salesperson during that call. And I would get to know them over the space of a few weeks because I'd go buy something else. Um, one guy, I remember walking in, I wanted to buy a printer and the printer came in two scenarios. The well, three actually, the cheap, the middle, and the highest one. And I was like, I'm going to get the best one. I'm going to get the best one. So I go up to him and he looks at me and he goes, Listen, they want you to buy the best one. And I get the best commission on the best one. But I got to tell you, I don't think it's the best deal. I think the second one is the best deal. I think it's the best deal because, frankly, I've seen the top one coming back in for a pair, like on a regular basis. People generally aren't that happy with it. And I'd rather you bought the one you're going to be happy with. What did I just learn about this guy? I just learned about this guy that he has morals above and beyond the sales objectives he's been given by his company. I want that. 
I want that. So now I know something about him that I'm never going to find in an interview. And so, of course, you know, I worked on recruiting it. It's a good strategy. I, uh, I also think there's now an opportunity now, especially depending on where you're living in the world, to find super talented people in other countries. And you can work with them remote. And yeah. they're super skilled. My team, and, you know, my team right now, I, I have that, I, that I'm really conscious of in this moment. I have people in London, England. I have people in the Carolinas. I have uh, people in uh, Calgary, Alberta. I have I have one person in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. I have uh, people in Florida. I have uh, um, one person in the Philippines. Like our company is very diverse and international, and that, that you know that gives us the opportunity. You're absolutely right. You you no longer have to hire the best person in your town. You can actually go out and get the very best person for your company. How do you normally find them if you can't go shopping in the electronics store? You go on LinkedIn and it's, actually it's look at like thing. the company. I just—it's a very similar thing. I—I I, just—I just operate my life and I bump into people and I'm—and I'm sorting. I'm looking, you know, and you know, like so somebody will write to me and you know, there's a special projects guy that I've worked with for a long time in the Philippines and I don't even remember how we first met. I think he—he he wrote to me one day and said I'd like to work on your website or something. And so I just. You know, my 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 view is, is remember also you don't always have to hire somebody full time right away. You can always give somebody a contract. You can give them a project. Do this one thing for me. So I had him do one or two things for me, and he did them world class. So I started giving him more things, and 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 I think that's another part is to recognizing recognize that recruiting doesn't have to be this black or white. I ha- I'm recruiting you. I've hired you. Recruiting can be hiring can be part of the recruiting strategy. In other words. Um, what I'd like you to do is come in and I'd like you to take this project on and I'd like you to take on a, a month's worth of work and let's see how we like working together. And then now that contract is actually part of the interviewing process. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good way now that it's, I think more people are also looking for the right bosses and the right collaborations and more people are actually willing to not just go for a full-time job, but they also want to see like who is the employer. Like, is it someone they actually want to work with? But it's a good way of doing it. Well, I often have students when I do talks at schools and stuff like that, they're asking like, you know, how, you know, what should we do when we go to the job interview? And, you know, we're really nervous. And I always say, well, the first thing is recognize that there are two interviews going on. There's the interview that they are running to find out if you're the kind of person that they want to hire. But then there's the interview that you are running, which is to find out whether this is the type of company you want to work for. And the joke is, is that that might sound arrogant and it might, you might think that that would lose you the job. But I can tell you as a business owner, when somebody comes into the, into the interview and they're taking an interest in the company and they're, they're finding out whether they, that person's way more attractive than the person who's like, I'll take anything. And so I, I think that's, a, that's, that's an important part of the interviewing process to recognize that both people are being interviewed. Hmm. That is super important. Another thing that's super hard is, um, or there's a saying, it's not the people you hire, it's the people you forget to fire that kills your business, right? And for me as a business or like as a, as a people person, it's always so damn hard and it feels horrible. Uh, but sometimes you got to let people go because if they're not doing well in your company, it's not the best thing for their career either. They need to find something else. How do yes. you identify those really fast? Well, I first have a rule. And my rule is this, if I have to fire somebody, it's my fault, not theirs. And, and that's, that's a very important rule in my life. And I see many people don't agree with me about that rule and they don't have to, they don't have to agree with me about that rule, but here's why I like this rule. 
Remember, the rule is, is that if I have to fire somebody, it's my fault. Well, let's just break that down. If I have to fire somebody, there's a number of things that I've done badly. One, I hired badly, potentially. Two, I may have trained badly. Three, I may have done the, the staff reviews and check-ins badly. Four, I might have ba provided bad supervision and, and reporting and checking and stuff. So I, all of those things are my responsibility. And by the way, the courts agree with me about this, is that when things go wrong between an employer and the employee, they pretty much always side with the employee unless the employer is incredibly well organized and has really good files and demonstrates how hard they worked to make things right for the employee. It's on the employer to do that. So what that means is the first thing that I'm really clear about when I work with clients is helping them refine their interviewing process to filter out nice, ineffective people that they would eventually have to fire before they even hire them. The best way to never have to fire somebody is not to hire them in the first place. So that means having an interviewing system uh, that allows people to, that allows uh, you as the interviewer to identify things about the person uh, that might, that might prevent you from hiring them. And, and I, I, that's a longer script we could go into, but I'll give an example. Most people go into an interview and they just ask a bunch of, they just ask a bunch of typical questions that the, that the prospective employee knows they're going to ask and is practice for. One of the things that I like to do is I like to ask very different kinds of questions that they're not really expecting. I might ask a question like, where's your favorite place to go on vacation? They're not expecting that. But let me tell you, one guy says, oh yeah, I just love camping with my family and you know, go, we go away and take a canoe and we the tent and we just love that. I've just learned some useful stuff about this person. I'm, 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 they feel better and better. They're family oriented. They like to spend time in nature. That sounds good to me. Then the next interview, where's your favorite place to go vacation? Vegas. I love Vegas, man. Last time I went to Vegas, I woke up in Bangkok. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating, but you see, this one question can teach you a great deal about the values of the person. So interviewing is the first place to not, not have to uh, fire people. The next place to not have to fire them is to train them effectively. But in order to train them effectively, you have to have really good written procedures and templates and stuff like that. Because otherwise, the training just gets watered down. You train somebody, they train somebody, they train somebody, and the quality is just sliding the whole time. You're going to have to fire people. But if you have really good documented procedures, then when you train them, they look at the procedures. Then when they train somebody, they look at the procedures, and you have a much better uh, flow of procedural integrity. Everything is good. Then the next place to not ever have to fire somebody is to do regular and effective staff reviews where you're not just like, you know, sitting down and going, well, how's it going for you? How's it going for me? Having a real system of doing a staff review where you hold them accountable, but you also listen to them about what they need. Then you do the best you can to satisfy their needs where it's reasonable and you do the best and they do the best they can to correct the things you've asked them to correct or improve the things you've improved. That should be done minimally. That should be done twice a year. I really think that it should be done more like quarterly. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing you can do to not fire them is to make sure that they're being supervised very, very well, which means that they're being, uh, that, I, know, I don't mean somebody's watching them. I mean, somebody's like supervising their career. Somebody's making sure that they feel empowered, that they have progress, that they're going to have the opportunity for, for growth and all that kind of stuff. If you do all of that, you don't have to fire anybody. I mean, it reduces your firing like crazy. But if you do identify that somebody needs to get fired, then my suggestion is that step one is to do everything in your power to rehabilitate the person because it was your responsibility. If you feel like you have to fire somebody, it's your responsibility. It's just the way it is. So that means the minute you feel like you need to fire somebody, you need to do everything you can to rehabilitate the situation. 
And here's the beauty of that. If you do it really well, if you really work with this person and you help them and you do everything you can to support them and they still don't change, they will just quit. They will because they will get it. They will get that they're not a fit and they'll, they'll end up quitting. Not because you pushed them out, not because you made the circumstance difficult for them, but because you gave them everything and they still couldn't make it work. And, 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 and then if they don't quit, well, you may have to fire them, but I'll tell you, I had to fire a guy like that once. And I went to his house to fire him because he took a bunch of fake sick days. So I went to his house to fire him. And I went to his house and I knocked on the door and he opened the door and I had an envelope in my hand and he goes, is that what I think it is? And I said, I think it is. He knew, he knew because I had worked so hard to rehabilitate him that he knew that he was getting fired. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that here, here, here's another rule. If you ever fire somebody and they're surprised, totally your fault. Yeah, but Eric, so the young entrepreneur who's sitting and be like, I like the thing about having systems and everything, but have no clue about like how the systems are supposed to be because they're hiring for a skill that they have like no capability in. What would you advise to do there? Because that's much harder, right? And it's much higher chance it's actually going to fail because you're probably hiring the wrong person because you don't need the skill. Like, like what I've learned is like try and find people that know about that skill, help them tell you actually like, what do you need? So you can start to make some kind of systems or at least ask the person and like test with them. Well, let's remember that any system or procedure that you create is hardly ever final. Yeah. Right? It's hardly ever final. So let's take a look at, say me. I'm forming my business. I'm not an accountant. I, I, I didn't, I, I know a great deal more about accounting now than I did then. So I'm really starting off. What am I going to do? I've never run a business before, but I am going to have to invoice people, issue purchase orders, pay bills, balance my checkbooks. I'm going to have to do those things. So I just write the very best procedure that I know how. You do this, you do this, you do this. Now I get to a place where I can hire a bookkeeper. Now, a lot of people think, oh, I don't have the money to hire an accountant. You don't have to. You hire a bookkeeper that comes in for, you know, in my case, it was for like two hours a week. Two hours a week, they go through everything. But now you say, these are our procedures. Please if you're using paper as we were back then, please mark in red anywhere that you think the procedure is broken or could be improved or clarified. So then they make notes on the procedure. You review those notes. Then you update the master document and you have a better procedure. And, and that is how a business is constantly improving. What's terrible is when you, let's say, have a procedure and somebody goes, yeah, that's not right. And they just organically do something different than the procedure and you don't document that. That's cancer. That's a problem. Makes sense. Makes sense. So uh, shifting gear a little bit, because you have done a ton of stuff within health and so on. What are some of the things that you do to have optimal energy and being able to show up as the happy person that I've at least only met so far? You know, um, I think it's very important to understand what um, nutrition really means. I, I, I think that most people don't really think it through properly. So one metaphor that I use for this is that if you and me and, and Nikolai, we got to bring Nikolai, but if mm. the three of us were going to get in our car in Copenhagen and we were going to drive to Tallinn, let's go to Tallinn. I'd love to go there. And uh, I've, got, we've, I've, I've got some kiteboarding friends there too. So we need wetsuits though. But anyway, I gotta go to uh, good deal. So we're going to get in the car. Now that's quite a drive, right? That's quite a drive. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to check that the car's needs are met. We're going to make sure it's got gas, that the oil is fresh and clean, that it's got, you know, uh, antifreeze in the, in the, in the, in the, 
in the bucket. It's got, you know, automatic brake fluid. It, the tires are the right pressure. The tires are actually in good shape. We're going to check all that stuff before we do a big drive because the cars need to be, need to be met. That is my approach to my body. I am on a journey and it, and, in, and, and by the way, it is not an easy journey. I take on, I'm constantly facing my fears and doing crazy stuff and what have you in business and on mountains, you know, everywhere. I, I have, I have, I, you know, I often talk about like the way cortisol works. And I use this example of like, if you walk down into a riverbed and there's a lion there, well, that's not an example. I've done that. I've literally walked down a riverbed and there's a bloody lion there. And that is scary. So what I'm trying to say is that the journey that I'm on requires that I've got fuel in the tank, that my tires are at good pressure, that my brake fluids are good, right? So I run through that checklist. Well, with humans, that checklist, I can't believe this isn't like taught in school, right? It just, but they, like, here's the checklist roughly. The highest priority is that you are breathing and you're breathing good quality air and you're breathing deeply and you're breathing in a way that communicates calm and safety to your body. Breathing exercise, meditation, breathing, that kind of stuff. That, that is the highest thing. The reason it's the highest thing is because you can only live for minutes without air. So it is the most important thing to do to breathe. Number two is hydration. You've got to be, you've got to be hydrated. And, and you know what doesn't hydrate you? Coffee and Coca-Cola. And they, they don't hydrate you. It's a fake hydration. It, we've got to be staying properly hydrated. Uh, uh, number three, sleep. Number four, movement. Uh, yeah, notice that food isn't even on the list yet. Because the truth is you can live for days or weeks without food. It's, it's important, but it's not urgent. And then, of course, we do want to get to food and we want to get to sunlight. And as long as we make sure that our needs are being met, then our emotions are more stable. Our motivation is higher. Our energy is higher. Our cognition is better. Our sex drive is better. Everything is better. So that's my answer. How is the air actually in Cabarete? Is that uh, high quality air? The air in Cabarete is yeah. incredible. Like if you take a look at a map, you know, take a look, you'll see where we are. The wind blows in from the east consistently you know when you were kiting here you notice mm -hmm. that we constantly have that southeast right like it's it constantly blowing in from the east where's the east africa so so what what's happening is is that all of our air is coming across the atlantic without cro crossing any land masses it is about the and, and by the way one of the best ways to clean air is to simply move it and cycle it when you move and cycle air then uh, it, it, you know, it, it ionizes and it releases all kinds of stuff and it cleans. So our air coming into Cabarete is perhaps among the cleanest air on planet Earth. I love living here. Uh, it makes sense. So I have an air clean at home here in Copenhagen. And um, that's when I realized that the air was not that clean. Because yeah. it asked me to close the windows <clears throat> because it can keep up as long as I got fresh air coming in. So that, yeah, that is... you know, I, I, it's been a long time, but I remember reading a, a report many years ago that said that um, one of the most effective ways of cleaning the air in your house is actually a ceiling fan more than an air filter. And the reason is that the air filters don't actually move the air around your house at all. They, they, they clean what air they come in contact with, but a ceiling fan makes sure that the air is constantly moving. And it's the movement of air that causes air to clean itself. So I'm not saying filters are a bad idea, but I'm saying air movement is key as well. Interesting. You mentioned water as well, which is a is a whole episode or many episodes in itself. Do you have like filters, structured water, uh, alkaline water, or like where on that whole like uh, water uh, water journey are you? I I am a traditionalist. What I mean by that is that I believe that we are best off drinking the water that our ancestors evolved to drink, and what that means is 
the most naturally occurring ground runoff water that we can get, spring water, glacial water, um, deep well water, and that kind of stuff. That's obviously not very practical for most people. So then we have to look at the kind of hierarchy of waters. If you're buying bottled water, the first thing is like wherever possible, it's got to be in glass. The planet does not need more plastic. we got to stop that entirely. But if you are buying bottled water, then I, I would go for the uh, mineral water. I would go for the ones that are actual, like naturally occurring mineral waters more than I would say a filtered or like a distilled or reverse osmosis water. The funny thing about water is that water, you know, we're always told we got to have water because it's an electrolyte and it conducts electricity. But no, it isn't. Water is not an electrolyte. Water does not conduct electricity. Impure water conducts electricity. And, and we want impure water. We want water with full of minerals. The one, you know, and, and we want that water because it is, it, it's healthy. When we take distilled water, we're actually taking dead water. And that water is going in and water is very magnetic. It's very attractive. So it's attracting minerals. So you take this water with no minerals into your body, distilled, and then you pee out water with minerals. Guess where the minerals are coming from? From you. So I, I'm not a big fan of like pure, completely uh, reverse osmosis, like distilled water. As best possible, I want naturally occurring water. And incidentally, I'm not a fan of municipal water. I won't drink water from city caps. But that said, if I am going to drink water from a city cap, like there's a big difference between if I'm in a hotel room and they didn't give me water in the room, if I'm in Mumbai, I'm not drinking that water right? Not doing that. If I'm here in the Dominican, I'm not drinking that water. If I'm in most cities in America, I'm not drinking that water. But if I'm in Denmark, if I'm in uh, Estonia, if, if I'm in, in one of those places, I, I will allow that on occasion because I don't think they're messing with the water as much as they are in other places. But equally, I've got friends of mine like, oh, I'm in Norway, I'm in Denmark, I can drink the water all day long. Look, I don't agree with that either. I, they are adding fluoride. They are adding stuff to the water. It's just what I'm saying is that your water quality might be better than, say, the water quality in Detroit, but it's still not going to be as good as naturally occurring water. And so the, 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 the focus to me has to be that, trying to get the best quality that I can. Frankly, I struggle with that here in the, in the Dominican Republic because there's not that much ground runoff water. So a lot of the water that we buy is actually distilled water, which is exactly what I'm against. But what do I do? I buy trace minerals and I add that to the water and let that sit for a while so that I'm, um, and I even, I'll even add salt to my water from time to time. So it's, you know, I'm trying to duplicate it back to the, the naturally occurring water that I enjoy. Interesting. The best water I found in Cabarete was at Fresh Fresh. They have these glass bottles. I'm not sure. And you just taste differently. I yeah. They put, um, uh, they also put, uh, um, they they put um, charcoal sticks in them to like suck out impurities and they add you know they do they do good good water at fresh fresh you're absolutely right interesting cool eric time is running i know you have to run off where can people find out more about you well it kind of depends on what they're looking for um if anybody is really interested in a nutrition or food psychology like changing their relationship with food the best place to go would be getwildfit.com um entrepreneurship is as you mentioned businessfreedom.com and, um, and then also, we didn't really talk much about this, but one of the greatest gifts I've given myself in my life is becoming comfortable with communicating. I, I, the me of 20 years ago would never sit and do an interview with me like this. I had too much social, I couldn't do it. Um, but I overcame my fears of that and got really interested in it. And so I now teach that uh, through speakernation.com, where we teach public speaking and digital product creation and stuff. But on a personal basis, I manage my own Instagram account, and I really do like, you know, once or twice a week, I sit down and do the best I can to get back to everybody who writes to me. So if anybody's got questions or what have you, ping me on Instagram and I'll do the best I can to answer you. That is rare, but pretty fantastic.
And just, I think it's fair to say a few more words on Wealth. It is like one of the top rated programs at Mind Valley, and it's extremely popular where there's like hundreds or thousands of people that's gone through and you see like total transformations of their life. I, I follow Virginia, or I'm not pronouncing her name correctly, yeah. um, that I met through uh, the, the Mai Tai community when I was in, uh, in Cabaretta, I think it was, and yeah. saw her transformation as well. And there's many of those stories. So it's, it's, it's definitely a good place for, to start for someone listening out there. It is in business the thing that I am absolutely the most proud of. I am blown away that something that I started as a hobby to help a few friends has turned into a disruptively effective health transformation program. We, we now have clients in 130 countries around the world. We have 400 coaches. The Canadian government like brought me to Ottawa and gave me a medal, like literally on the Senate floor, gave me a medal for the work that we're doing around the world. I am really grateful for it. And I'll just say this, um, the diet industry, the food industry, they're not on our side. They're not here to help us. They're here to profit from us. And maybe that sounds funny because, of course, I'm selling a program and people can profit from it, but that, I never built it for that purpose. And um, why I say that is that uh, the, the way it works right now is the food industry wants you to feel like a failure and wants you to feel shame because if you feel shame and guilt about your food, you'll eat more. And then the diet industry, the minute their diet fails you, then you know it's like, well, it's your fault. You should have stuck with it. You should have done something. And so one of the things we always say at Wildfood is that people don't fail at diets. Diets fail people. And we've decided to take responsibility for that. And that's why it's been so effective. And that's why the transformations are so long lasting. I mean, our, many of our testimonials are from three, four years ago. They're not like somebody who, I did this program for two weeks and it's amazing. No, it's people that have changed their lives. So yeah, super exciting. It's definitely a cool program. Eric, I always ask my guests before ending, like what are like one to three advice to end off with if they have to give an advice to listeners about how to live this happy, healthy and meaningful life? You know, um, when you play a video game, video games have um, like sort of quite calm times and then hard times and then calm times and then hard times. And the hard times are where all the power-ups are, where all the bonuses are, and also it's where the learning is. So, for example, if, uh, Mads, if you and I were playing a game, or no, how about this? Let's say I've been playing a game for a very long time, and I'm on level 300, and you've never played the game, and you try to play level 300. You won't be able to, because you didn't do the first 300 levels that taught you the rules, that taught you how to do it. Now, what if we looked at life that way? What if we realize that our life is full of these like calm times and then these incredibly hard times? What we do in video games is when you get ready for the hard time, it's like, all right, and you're ready. But in life, we, the hard time comes, you're like, you know? And what I wanna suggest is, what if we, what if we took the video game approach? What if, what if you looked at every single one of the hard times as the power up, the bonus round, the opportunity? And do you think that it might be more fun, that you might get a better result, and that overall life would be more enjoyable? Live life like it's a video game sometimes. I love that. I always become very grateful when I have challenges because I know when I'm going to be on the other side, I'm going to appreciate it a bit more. Same when I get sick. You, know, like you get to appreciate like something is tough and, and often it is a lesson. And yeah. the best stories often come at the back of something difficult. So true. 
So fantastic, Eric. I really appreciate your time. It was wonderful to catch up again. I hope to see you kitesurfing uh, potentially here in Copenhagen one day. Otherwise, I'll be back in Cabaretta and see if I can find you in the in the water. Sounds good. I'm planning to be home. I'm actually splitting my time this year in the summer between Estonia and uh, and Cabarete. So, uh, um, and you know how it is here, July, August. It's like the ultimate kiteboarding time. So grab Nikolai. Let's get down here. Fantastic. Super nice to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.